I V M. South Korea stands out in the world. It has the 11th largest economy, the fastest internet in the world, the second best access to quality healthcare. It's the world's fifth largest exporter, eighth largest importer, and one of the most innovative places in the world. But its democracy is only about 30 years old. Welcome to States of Anarchy. I'm your host, Hamsini Hariharan, and every week on the show, we discuss global affairs and foreign policy. When I was in South Korea, I was struck by the fact that both India and South Korea in the 1940s were facing a similar quality of life. But now in 2019, South Korea has far exceeded what India has accomplished. How did it recover from a civil war and dictatorships? What about its democratic institutions? If South Korea is so economically advanced, why are there protests happening every other day? What are the biggest challenges to the South Korean democracy? My guest for today is someone who is going to demystify South Korea's democratic politics. Eric Mobrand is the associate professor of Korean studies at the Graduate School of International Studies at Seoul National University. He's also written a book recently called Top Down Democracy in South Korea. I met Eric when I was in Seoul in April this year. But before we get to my conversation with him, let's hear from IBM Podcasts. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another week on the IBM Podcast Network. As always, it's an awesome week. We'd like to thank our sponsors on the network this month as well, Savari, Storytel, and Paytm Money. Just a reminder, we're hiring some people. We're looking for producers, content creators, audio engineers, developers. Check out our careers page on our website. And if you're interested in working at the most awesome place in the world, please do send us your application. We have a few new shows launching. So the first new show we got launching is called Mr. and Mrs. Binge Watch. It's hosted by Janice Sequeira and Anirudh Goa. They're a TV-crazy, Netflix-loving, binge-watching couple who snort television for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They talk about the shows they binge on and a whole lot more. New episodes are out every Thursday on our network. Another new show we have is called Edges and Sledges. It's a cricket podcast where Varun, Ashwin, and DJ talk all about cricket. This week, they have Tatenda Taibu, the former Zimbabwe captain, as their guest. It's the ICC World Cup season, so definitely check this one out. On the scene and the unseen, Shruti Rajkopalan returns. It's Amit Verma's favorite guest to discuss the CJI Ranjan Gokoi case. It's loopholes, the politicization of the case, and judicial activism. On paperback, for the first time, Racheta and Satyajit discuss a work of fiction. They discuss the Harry Potter series with Tanisha Fagwani, founder and CEO of EFG Store.in. On our Marathi podcast, Golgappa, Tripti is joined by Gitanjali Gondale, founder of Moha by Gitanjali, an artisanal accessory brand to talk about how she became a self-taught jewelry designer, her latest collections and the current trends in the market. On Paisa Vesa, Anupam is joined by transformation mentor Srinivasan Ranganathan to talk about how religion, knowledge and the desire to make money can help you with better wealth management decisions. On Geek Fruit, Tejas and Dinkar interviewed Taruk Raina, the star of last year's hit Disney stage production, Aladdin. They talk about the live-action adaptation of Aladdin and compare it with the animated classic. On IVM Likes, Janam and Abhinit are joined by the two ultimate Game of Thrones nerds, Gauri Pandit and Dhriti Menon, to talk about the final season of the ambitious TV show. And with that, let's go on with your show. Hi, welcome back to States of Anarchy. I'm Hamsini Hariharan, and I'm talking to Dr. Eric Mobrand about the state of democracy in South Korea. All right. Hi, welcome to States of Anarchy. Thank you for speaking with me. It's my pleasure. Um, okay, how would you define a democracy? Well, I think uh, I'm a political scientist, and in political science, we would usually define a democracy today in terms of a place that selects leaders through mass elections in which multiple parties might win that election. Hopefully on the side of that, there's some basic protection of civil liberties so people can say what they want and organize in the way they, they want. I think those are sort of the basic criteria for what a democracy is today. Yeah, when you look at Asia, there are a few democracies that stand out, right? I mean, Korea is an obvious example, Japan is another, India is a third. Um, and these are ones that strike you immediately. If you look at sort of like the democracy indices that are put out by economist or anyone else, Korea scores pretty high, whereas South Korea scores pretty high, whereas North Korea is always sort of at the bottom. I was actually surprised when I came to Seoul to find out that South Korean democracy was only 30 years old. It, I always knew it in the back of my mind because I read about it, but it was only when I came and I was like, okay, this is a really young democracy. Um, how did that happen? 
Right, it is. I think places like South Korea and Taiwan in this part of Asia are kind of the bright spots uh, for democracy these days. And when you come to Seoul, you do feel that it has a very vibrant political society because there's so many demonstrations occurring on the streets and uh, people are clearly saying when they're upset about about something. But it is only three decades since a transition from a rather brutal uh, dictatorship in which presidents were not elected and civil rights were not respected in any way. At the same time, before then, before the major transition in 1987-88, South Korea was called a democracy, but this was in the Cold War context. So it was a, it was a Cold War democracy. And in that period, a country in this region could call itself a democracy. And by that, it really meant it was anti-communist. That was kind of the low standard for what a democracy was. They could do enough things to signal to the United States that they were anti-communist, then they could label themselves as democratic. So the idea of being a democratic society has been around for a very long time. But the substance of democracy, in a sense that is recognizable to someone from India or another part of the liberal democratic world is much more recent. Okay, so could you just briefly sort of walk me through the history of South Korea? I know that, you know, sure. it was taken over by Japan and the Korean War was fought in 1915 mm-hmm. So what happened after that? Uh, well, so just before that, in 1945, uh, when World War II ends and the Japanese begin to depart, Then we have the Korean Peninsula divided and uh, the United States comes and is in charge of Southern Korea. There's a hope for a while that it's going to be a unified Korean Peninsula. This uh, does not come together. In the meantime, a U.S. military government is in charge of Southern uh, Korea. Three years later, in 1948, uh, the Republic of Korea as an independent uh, country is formed on, of course, August 15th, an important day in India as well in a different year. But this is followed very quickly by the Korean War. So we have basically continual chaos from the end of World War II through the Korean War into the mid-1950s. In those early years, we have a, a government that is elected. That is, there was elections for the National Assembly from 1948 onwards. But by today's expectations, it did not look especially democratic. Again, the Cold War, the emerging Cold War situation really colored what kind of democracy this was. There was a lot of anti-communism, rather, justified a lot of violence against those who were not necessarily communists, not necessarily threats to the state, but could be portrayed as such. Okay, sure. Because national security is always seen as an important part, particularly for like a new region, right? Right, right. And this is a tension we can actually see in, in any country. And we see more recently in some countries in the world, even as they're held up as shining democracies, when national security is presented as a serious matter, then some things, uh, some parts of democracy can be cast aside momentarily. Well, this was more than momentarily in South Korea. This was sort of the daily practice of, uh, of politics. Skipping forward into the 1960s, we have a military coup in 1961, which brings, of course, military figures into power. By that time, the military was really the most modernized organization in South Korea. In some ways, perhaps a coup was, if not inevitable, we can understand why it happened. This was a relatively poor country with a military that had been uh, created and trained by the United States. So it was very professional. Of course, there was uh, tremendous resources from the United States. The experience of the Korean War swelled the ranks of the military and justified um, those sorts of budgets. So once there was a, a relatively weak government in power, then the situation was perhaps ripe for a coup to occur. So this happened in 1961, and eventually put the former general Park Jung-hee into power. Two years later, he changed the regime into a civilian regime again. That is, he revised the constitution, and uh, elections were restored, and he formed a political party, and he ran for office. And so he was uh, elected as leader under a civilian regime. But I'm thinking, 
all sorts of interesting things. This is the Onshine Constitution. That one comes just a little bit later. So in 1963, we have this, uh, this again, ostensibly democratic civilian regime set up where there are quasi-competitive elections. The opposition does have some freedom to speak and organize, but it can be harassed a little bit as well. There is an intelligence agency established that can do that work. There's kind of what we call now the deep state, the security forces behind all of that. Then in the early 1970s, 1972, we get to this Yushin regime yes, that, you have, that you have read about. Um, this is a case of something like an auto coup. It's where the president holds a coup against himself <laughs> and grants himself Was it more because power. he was losing power? Well, it's, I think we can think about it in terms of three different things. So on the one hand, domestically, right, he'd been challenged in the most recent presidential election in 1971. Hadn't, wasn't quite close to losing it, but a little bit close to losing it. This is one uh, important dimension. Another important dimension is more international and regional. At this time, things were not going so well for the United States in Vietnam. And there was a concern in anti-communist Asia that, well, is the U.S. going to move out of the region and not support us anymore? So in autumn of 1972, this encouraged Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines to seize personal power for himself. And three weeks later, Park Jong-hee did the same. In Korea, so there's a domestic component, but there's also this international, regional yeah, the component. Was sort of very important backdrop to things that were happening in the Korean democracy. Absolutely, absolutely. So we need to think about what's going on inside the country, and then what's happening uh, broadly and in relation to to the United States. And then under this uh, Yushin Constitution, this is sort of the period of high dictatorship in uh, South Korea. Direct elections for the presidency are suspended. An opposition party exists and it can contest national assembly elections, but uh, the security forces are doing quite a lot to harass people in society. And also sort of the election commission has some very bizarre rules, right? They had to be headquartered in Seoul, they couldn't sort of campaign in grassroots levels, so... That's right. That's right. That's um, my reading as well. I think this is also another, this is a big contrast with a place like India where the election commission in my limited understanding, is held up as a real pillar of the country's democracy. In South Korea, the election commission was reorganized under Park Jong-hee. Again, not the most liberal of conditions for uh, reorganizing an institution. And so if we associate the election commission with the period of authoritarian rule in South Korea, then that raises big questions about what it is as an organization and where it fits in a democracy. No, I understand that the election commission in India has been sort of praised um, mm. over and over again, but I think it, it also faces a lot of criticism. Okay. Um, for example, this year there have been sort of films that have been released about the current prime minister two weeks before the election day, which is clear, you know, electioneering right. <laughs> against sort of every mandate or, or rule that exists. And the election commission said, you know, it's just a film, it doesn't matter. Right. And then sort of raising their eyebrows. So, but I think as an institution, it also has one of the most difficult jobs to do because mm-hmm. its very purpose is to, you know, safeguard institutions of democracy that mm-hmm. almost everyone wants to mm-hmm. uh, manipulate to their own good. I see. Right, right. And the, I imagine the challenge in India uh, for a country of that scale and diversity is, is rather different from the challenge in a place like South Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, where there were also other institutions ensuring ensuring order, but the the, the laws at governing elections and their enforcement in South Korea have been very rigid mm-hmm. from this authoritarian time. And in my interpretation, anyway, this kind of suppresses a lot of potential political participation mm-hmm. and forces it onto the streets. And so, even earlier, but especially from the 1970s, we have a lot of street demonstrations, some underground activism, because that's the only place that people who care about politics in their country can go. The space, the open political space in parties or elections is very, very narrow mm-hmm. in this period. All right. I want to come back to protest sure. a little later. Of course. What happens after Soviet Washington Day? Yes. So in the 1970s, then, we have this period of, of brutal dictatorship and 
This continues in 1979. He's assassinated by the director of his intelligence agency in a dispute over how to deal with protests occurring in, in one part of the country. Uh, there's a film uh, about this episode called The President's Last Bang. The President's Last The President's Bang. Last Bang. <laughs> Bang. It's a terrific English title for, uh, right. for a film about an assassination by gun. And so he's assassinated in 1979 at, at a dinner by his intelligence agency director. This leads to another coup by generals who were on Pak Jong-hee's side. They begin to come to power at the end of 1979. This leads to uprisings, yeah, protests, including in Gwangju in the southwest in 1980. This leads to more suppression and prompts more protests and eventually martial law and a lot of violence done toward ordinary citizens in that region by the military. But eventually this uh, set of generals consolidates power and their regime rules until 1987. The 80s are a period of a lot of turmoil. The Gwangju incident, the uh, killing of civilians uh, who had taken control in Gwangju, really delegitimized the government of the 1980s. It was, even if the Pak Jong-hee regime, especially in the brutal period of the 1970s, was not very nice at all, and there were lots of critics, the Gwangju incident of 1980 was far worse and symbolically far more important for many activists and in the 1980s. And I think also because Pak Chang-hee put in a lot of um, policies that would sort of boost South Korean economy, his regime is looked at less severely than the following? Uh, I think that's true. It's uh, true at least for some groups and especially today. Mm-hmm. I think somewhat less so at the time. Mm-hmm. Less so at the time. A lot of the positive discussion of Pak Chang-hee comes much much later, actually, uh, in the 1990s and, and beyond, as people are remembering fondly a period when economic growth came more easily, um, as it can when you're uh, in, the, in that stage. So the, this next regime that the leader was uh, called Chen Duban, Chen's regime started with this real lack of legitimacy. And so uh, demonstrations continued in the 1980s. In 1987, Uh, We were on the cusp of the Olympics being held in Seoul. There were further demands for constitutional reform. And in light of all of these pressures, the man who was uh, appointed to succeed President Chun as head of the ruling party uh, made a sudden announcement of an immediate program of political liberalization. Ah, okay. And what prompted the sudden... Well, it was the confluence of of these factors of continual pressure on the streets for some sort of opening of some pressure from the established opposition. There are people uh, like Kim Dae-jung, who would later become president, Kim Young-sam, who had been dissidents in uh, in abroad during parts of the 1980s, uh, putting this this kind of pressure on the regime. And then the publicity, the worldwide attention coming with the Olympics that I think he didn't want to see uh, when they held the Olympics in 1988. And sort of anticipating that, they said, well, let's just have uh, an immediate liberalization. And he won those elections, right? Indeed, right. So, so this is uh, a, a strategic calculation. And a similar thing happened in Taiwan with the ruling uh, KMT, that leaders in, in both of these societies eventually realized, well, if we open up maybe a little bit or in a certain way, then maybe we have a good chance of continuing mm-hmm. to stay in power. It's sort of like a stopgap measure to... Yeah, just ease a little bit of the pressure. That metaphor has been used, uh, that exact metaphor has been used by scholars describing that transition. To be sure, it was an important moment. It was really um, the big moment in Korea's democratic transformation. At the same time, there were these limits. Uh, They suspected that they would be able to divide the opposition and have a good chance of winning the next uh, elections, and they they were correct about that. Um, and there were some limits to the reform. Many uh, workers were not happy with the uh, democratic transition. In fact, right after the announcement of liberalization is when the largest labor demonstration in the country's history occurred because uh, laborers had wanted a more thoroughgoing kind of uh, okay. and, reform. Uh, so just like labor reform? 
Well, one of the main concerns among activists for democracy or for political change in the, in the 1980s was to limit the power of the conglomerates, the Chebo, the Samsung, Hyundai, the companies that those of us anywhere in the world today are, are very familiar with. The government rules made it very easy for the executives of those companies to control their workers. Samsung famously does not allow unions, mm-hmm. right? So there was a desire among many of the activists, especially those coming from labor, to have a kind of political transition that would more fundamentally reshape the relationship between government and business. Okay. And this was not a part of the of the democratic transition. And this is something that still plays on today, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. This is uh, a mainstay of, of Korean politics and and scandal. You know, is big business too influential or is it held in check by the state? Mm-hmm. I think the current government has tried to do some things. The courts have tried to do some things. We have the uh, de facto head of Samsung did spend a few months in prison. It's the first time that a head of Samsung has ever been in prison, despite many scandals in the past. So there is a, a sense that um, they can be held to account in some limited ways, at least. <laughs> so yeah. things have changed. They have not remained yeah. uh, I mean, only that they, way. They've been famous for, you know, um, a presidential pardons, right? To Correct. any of the chamber members who have been famously accused or even sentenced, which is still mm-hmm. rare in South Korea. Right, we've had some uh, of the big companies being found to hold slush funds for paying off politicians, mm-hmm. for example, and Oftentimes what happens is there's a too-big-to-fail type of argument that's made. So even though in, in South Korean society there can be a lot of resentment and uh, frustration with the conglomerates, um, an argument is still made that, well, if these big companies don't do well, then we're all not going to do well. And so, and, so is that sort of also reminiscent of what happened with the Asian financial crisis in the 1990s? Uh, partly, right. That That's uh, part of, of what uh, happened then. With the Asian financial crisis in Korea, the Asian financial crisis is called the IMF crisis. Everything, okay. everything, the way people talk, the way people write about the crisis, they call it not the Asian financial crisis, but the IMF crisis. Is it because it's blamed on the international monetary? Precisely. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, the crisis is associated with uh, the IMF uh, coming and uh, putting conditionality on to Korea, forcing some uh, economic restructuring. In that process, uh, one conglomerate folded, but other ones got even bigger. Mm-hmm. And others, well, they had to face competition from foreign entities, foreign banks, and other foreign companies, but they also had opportunities to gain access to foreign credit and investment, which could only make the conglomerates larger. So this sort of complicated politics has been part of the scene for many decades. Mm-hmm. And there's also sort of, uh, I think in Chinese they call it Guanxi, a network. Mm. And uh, in, so in Korea, is the term Jiu? Oh, Tong? Well, yes, but I think it's it's used a little bit less frequently in sort of the instrumental business sense. Right. That term is used in China. I think if we want to associate cultural norms with the conglomerates, it's more this kind of family norms. These are family-run, effectively private firms. And the rest of the world, we hear about this when there are scandals like the Korean Air and the, the daughter of the now previous head had gotten angry about being served peanuts on the, on, the, on, the, yeah, on the bag or on the plate, something like yeah. this. It was served improperly, and she reacted rather negatively to this, I think, um, and, and was... Uh, jailed for, for a time because of her behavior. So she was the daughter of the executive. So these are, yeah, these are family-run firms. Samsung is run by the third generation of, of that family as well. Yeah, this is interesting because big businesses are also part of Indian democracy, right? Um, you have these big companies like the Tatas and the Omanis right. and now the Alanis. And a lot of them go back to pre-independence, but, okay. you know, the, these are these huge personalities who are part of the freedom struggle and then started their own businesses. Mm. And to this date, there's sort of always a nexus between businesses and governments. Right. And there are always corruption scandals coming, there's always, you know, rent seeking behavior by government and people, staff. And mm. it's, yeah, those are the elements I think that 
India and South Korea shared in a lot of um, crony capitalistic mm-hmm. senses. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's right. That's right. And it's it's difficult in in a place like South Korea and maybe India today. Well, in order for the country to get wealthy, it rather relied on domestic capital to do that. What would the alternative have been? Would it have been to rely on foreign capital? If it had relied on foreign capital, would many of the benefits actually stayed in the country? These are really kind of tough questions. And so I think acknowledging that large local companies played a role in the country's industrialization doesn't mean we have to be in favor of continuing to grant them privileges today. True, and I think South Korea is such a big part because I was reading that um, the public spending by the government is much lower, particularly during the time when General Park was in power, mm. because they like the chairman to do a lot of the spending that the government typically did, because the government sure. didn't have that kind of money. Right. Um, so you can see how sort of the big businesses like the chairman are tied into sort of mm. the history of the Korean democracy. Okay? That's right. That's right. At this point. Let's take a break. Hi, I'm Anupam Gupta, B50 on Twitter, and listen into the Equity Sahya podcast brought to you by Mozilla Losfal Asset Management Company. The Equity Sahya podcast offers deep investment insights into the potential of many sectors in India which are growing and have a lot to offer for your portfolio. New episodes out every Tuesday on the IBM Podcast app or any other app where you get your podcast from. Welcome back after the break. You're listening to States of Anarchy and I'm Hamsuni Hariharan. So how has the Korean democracy been faring for the last couple of years? There's an impeachment that mm-hmm. I'm right now. Right. Um, yeah, right. that was really since the 90s. Well, I think um, after, so after the transition in to, to uh, what, what most, place, most people would consider a democratic uh, regime in the late 1980s and early 1990s, the politics became more relatively more stable. The democracy was somewhat limited in that a lot of people coming from labor in particular had a hard time still breaking into public electoral politics and tended to move toward civil society, toward forming uh, social organizations, having demonstrations on the street. So this has been really continuous, also a continuous feature of South Korea's uh, politics, these demonstrations, which we can understand partly as a symptom of the formal political system not integrating Mm. everybody into it. Then in 2012, we had the daughter of of Park Jong-hee becoming uh, elected and the following year becoming president. And she ran on um, kind of promises of returning to the growth of her father's period, a message that really resonated with many people, especially of an older generation who had some uh, memories of that period. And it was rather shocking to many other people that somebody associated with that period and who was explicitly associating herself with that period would be successful in electoral politics. Sort of like a narrative that you wanted to break. Indeed, indeed. I mean, this, this goes against what I had thought had become the sort of values and sensibilities of democratic South Korea. It may have to do with economic conditions in the country. Um, being, well, it's still that there's, I mean, there are these continuing problems of uh, youth unemployment that people graduate from university and they struggle to find uh, jobs, uh, difficulty breaking in and, and doing entrepreneurship, starting businesses, small and medium enterprises not doing so well, plus growing inequality. Mm-hmm. Sort of all of these things, I think, help to make the, the hope of a return to previous pattern of high growth and high social mobility appealing. It also turns out that there was manipulation in this election. Most of the elections until then had been fairly clean, at least. Uh, that is, there's not too much uh, manipulation or, or vote buying for that matter. But in this case, they found that the intelligence agency had uh, coordinated internet campaigns to support uh, Park Geun-hye and against her opponent in the election. Huge number of uh, posts on social media by probably thousands of people working for this this cause. Anyway, she served as president. And then um, 
In 2016, there were revelations of wrongdoing, abuse, a very serious abuse of office uh, by uh, Pekene. And then we had the launching of a movement uh, called the Exactly, the Candlelight Movement. So every weekend for several weeks into winter, when it was very cold, people would gather in, in central Seoul and demanding her to step down. And eventually the National Assembly listened and impeached her, including legislators from who had been in her party uh, impeached her. And uh, a few months later, the Constitutional Court ruled that she should uh, be removed from office. And is she serving her 25 years in jail or will she be able to get her? Because it's a common feature that maybe to be able to get her to jail sentences when you're powerful. Well, <laughs> well, she, as soon as she uh, lost her presidential immunity, then she could be charged criminally, which she was, and quickly arrested and, and put in prison. She was sentenced and she, anyway, she's there now. She, she may not be there for the whole term, but she's there now. And I think that these events, especially when compared with events in other parts of the world in the same time, really make... South Korea today stand out as, as kind of a beacon of democracy in this period. Um, when we think about how kind of unorganized mass movements have supported very different sorts of political causes elsewhere in the world. Uh, earlier in 2016, there had been, of course, Brexit. There had been Duterte coming to power uh, in, in the Philippines. And here in Korea, it was a largely unorganized movement. There was some some coordination from established civil society, but they, they sort of stepped back, stepped back more than they've done in previous demonstrations. And it was it, it felt more spontaneous. People showed up as families, extremely peaceful, extremely positive. People were very angry, but there was a very positive energy at these gatherings. It's in some ways remarkable that hundreds of thousands of strangers show up somewhere and no violence happens. Right? Yeah. It's logistically remarkable. <laughs> it's remarkable that I think the humans are capable of this. In the depths of window, and it's. In the depths of window. Right. And somebody's going to get angry for some reason, and yet yeah. they don't. And this is in part one argument is that um, people were able to police themselves quite well. And you could see that when somebody started to misbehave, climbing up onto a military bus or something like that, the others would say, no, we must be peaceful and, and sort of in- encourage the person to come down. This is also remarkable because I'm sort of thinking that the events in South Korea preceded what happened later in the U.S. with sort of similar right. accusations about, mm. you know, uh, manipulation of social media to sort of boost candidates. Right. Uh, what's been happening in countries around the world have mm. similar strains, um, right. but actually sort of resolving that, managing to impeach a president who is powerful and who has networks and connections. Right. It's sort of a remarkable feature that we have for civil society. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, one way to think about it is that that um, democratic institutions failed. Mm-hmm. We, we wouldn't have gotten to that scandal without them failing. Uh, the president had um, delegated authority to personal friends in ways that really were uh, almost unimaginable that somebody would would do this. She had cultivated a personality. She was a very private person. She didn't give a lot of press conferences, almost gave no press conferences. The ones she did give were, script, give were scripted. She knew the interview questions that were coming in. But it was sort of written off as just her personality. Um, and it turns out that she used that space in order to, to act inappropriately. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was also, there was, she had not responded when there was a ship called the Sewo, had sunk with 304 people dying, mostly school children. This had been a couple of years earlier. And one of the revelations was that she had learned about this and not acted for seven hours. And this was not one of the charges that the Constitutional Court could hold up, but it was one thing that really angered people. And I think understand that. I, I can understand why people were angered right. by that, because if you want a sort of leader who's decisive, then... Mm. Um, particularly in things that matter. This is also an incident that's very easy to sort of target hamstrings, right? I mean, right. It's school children, it's clear manipulation, the event could mm. be prevented. Right. And I think even the first responders weren't properly equipped, and all of that just right. was the result of mm. massive uh, agents on behalf of the government. Right. 
So we have these sort of the failure of, of institutions. But what's most impressive is that when the institutions failed, people stepped up and there was a correction, right? Mm-hmm. The, the National Assembly listened, the Constitutional Court listened, um, and, uh, and the new presidential elections were held, and there was this uh, correction. And so this interaction between popular political energy and governmental reform, in the last three, four years, where else can we think of such a positive interaction like this? So to me, this is historically very remarkable. For, and for South, Korea. Experience for South Korea. These institutions have historically not worked before this incident? Well, there's always been demonstrations, right? So South Korea has this uh, very protest-happy culture. Yes, I've been history. talking about any day, and this actually happened. I was going to see the Gyeongbakgu, the okay, palace, the right. main palace in South Korea, and someone said, oh, you should just go to the square, where there's a huge statue of Seijo Mukherjee, you would possibly see a protest. Right. And I was like, what do you mean to possibly see a protest? But then when I did turn up there, there was a very silent mm-hmm. protest with people singing and right. I don't remember what it was about, but I right. know that that's a regular occurrence. Right. <laughs> and I don't know if this is an urban myth, but I've heard this thing about the campus in which we're in, Seoul National University, that apparently after the war, because students were known to protest so much, they said, you know what, let's just shift this campus to a mountainous area where they will be out of view and hopefully take that time of coming down to the center of Seoul. I, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> as as an employee of the university, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say. But <laughs> my understanding is that is correct. <laughs> you can still go to the old campus. Uh, the hospital is there down, downtown. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a long walk to get anywhere. So if students are upset. They have a long ways to go from here. <laughs> so we, yeah, so despite this kind of protest-rich culture, the candlelight movement was probably the biggest in Korea's history, possibly in 1987, on the cusp of democracy, those were bigger, but it's on that scale. So there's an understanding in Korea that this was a major historical movement. And I think when we look worldwide, it really does put sort of South Korea at the forefront of democracy today. And what is remarkable or especially significant about this moment is that South Koreans don't need to look to some Western country to think about what democracy is or should be right now. It doesn't make any sense to look to any Western democracy as, as a model for democracy today. Yeah. Uh, until 2016, that was kind of a default mode of speaking. In order for our politics to get better, all oh, we should look at the United States or the UK or something like this. It doesn't make sense anymore. And they see what they have accomplished here. And I think there's a feeling of kind of trail, trailblazing mm-hmm. among activists uh, Koreans today. I, I attend for the, the past year or so, I've been attending seminars where people are talking about the candlelight movement, talking about the nature of political engagement, and they're throwing out many ideas for how we can develop our democracy further. What should participation look like? How do we deal with problems of environment like air pollution, um, plastic pollution, inequality, work-life balance? How can our politics be more responsive to this. And they try to get some ideas from outside, but it's no longer the case that, hey, here's this sort of model, Western model, and let's try to achieve it. Rather, it's this is something we need to build for ourselves. Yeah, I think um, in the 1990s, Lee Kuan Yew, the former mm-hmm. president, uh, prime minister of Singapore, I had said, you know, Western-style democracies will not work in Asia because we mm-hmm. sort of just can't impose um, then want to hear and expect right. that they will work because Asian cultural values are fundamentally different. But I think now there's sort of a new wave that's mm. happening in Asia with sort of strengthening of democracies. Right. Whereas you know, Western democracies are doing their own soul searching about their own institutions. Right. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's a good way to put it. That I think you'd be as a wave. And I think we should be at that moment. It's almost crazy if we're not, but we should be at a, at a moment where it's recognized that. We have many substantial democracies or several substantial democracies in the region with Korea, Taiwan, Indonesia, also an election, and India, among others. And we should not necessarily expect that democracy as it was devised by Western thinkers would look exactly the same in all of these diverse places. Every country has to deal with different sorts of problems. And even if they kind of look different, that doesn't mean they're not democracies. It means they're working through it. 
uh, in their own ways. True, and I think what it also means is, you know, sort of when you think of a democracy, what I asked you at the beginning, what does right. democracy mean? Right. Uh, you could have the three pillars of a democracy, right? You could right. have like a legislature, a judiciary, and an executive, mm. and still sort of not be a, a true liberal democracy. Um, and and uh, which brings me to another thing, which is the media. I was sort of looking at where the South Korean media was right. because I know that South Korea is super tech savvy and everyone is on the mm-hmm. internet. And I uh, think, you know, sites and they're very active on Twitter and sites like Oh My News. But right. the traditional sort of print or broadcast media generally doesn't uh, criticize the government, right? Um, yeah, the media is, is uh, extremely powerful here. Mm-hmm. And it, again, we have this kind of post Cold War or lingering Cold War uh, environment um, where the media had been used somewhat to spread disinformation. And there are that, that's, that mode lingers a bit. So most of the established broadcasters and print media have a very clear political slant, even if they don't say it explicitly. Yeah, and I think another factor would sort of be just advertising revenue, right? Mm. I mean, if you're going to be getting advertising revenue from a big firm that also has stakes in a political party, then you don't want to piss mm. anyone off and sort of lose that funding. Right, and uh, it's here we also have large firms running the media. So some of the major newspapers are run by conglomerates with interests in other fields. So it's not even as indirect as relying on advertising. It's that these are big business enterprises themselves. Yeah, no, that, that makes complete, complete sense because as someone who's also coming from the media landscape in mm. India, most of sort of the large newspapers are owned yeah. by big businesses that do other things including like mining mm. um, or something wow. uh, to that tune. Right. And therefore there are also people who are members of parliament who are associated with newspapers and therefore mm. you do have clear political slums. Mm. So sources of sort of objective news are mm. Yeah. The online, um, the, the sort of alternative media landscape has been extremely vibrant here as, as you mentioned and they were instrumental actually in revealing the scandal in 2016 that led to the disgrace of Pakkane and, and the candlelight uh, movement. Uh, probably without them, we would never have learned about the scandal in the first place. So there is, you know, an intrepid batch of kind of alternative journalists who have worked very hard and are politically engaged um, and have kind of opened people up to, to these things. Mm-hmm. And something else that I was thinking about was also sort of the constitution of South Korea, because in India we pride ourselves on having the longest constitution in the world, which we amend about right. five times a year. Right. Um, but South Korea has actually had several different constitutions, right? I think the first one was in 1948, and then with each sort of right. topic that was coming right. in, it was changed. Yeah, so they... Um uh, in Korea, they don't revise the constitution that often, uh, so it's, it stays and hasn't been revised since 1987, since the democratic constitution. There's discussion today about revising it. I'm skeptical that any substantial revision will, will actually pass, but there is a, a discussion about it. Actually, South Korea has had only one constitution, but it's been, legally speaking, one constitution, but it's been revised. But those revisions have been very substantial in some cases. Okay. So, for example, the 1972, mm-hmm. this Yushin constitution was a very substantial revision of the original constitution to make the presidency unelected. Um, but formally, it's sort of one continuous constitution, which reads like a good American liberal mm-hmm. document, basically. Yes, but I'm also guessing that because, you know, the constitution also went sort of this authoritarian period in mm-hmm. South Korea's history, a lot of the laws are still reminiscent of those periods. Yes, yeah, so there are, are kind of different instruments that were used for repression. Mm-hmm. And the constitution was perhaps used less mm-hmm. compared to others. So the country was able to maintain a constitution that looked like, again, like an American liberal document largely to signal to the Americans that, hey, we are the democracy here. But there were other things that sort of circumvented the Constitution. For example, the national security law, which was uh, put out a few months after South Korea became an independent country in 1948. And the national security law allowed uh, security forces to detain people 
without due process if they were suspected of being agents of Pyongyang. And this allowed for all sorts of abuses of civil rights. And so some scholars would say that the national security law is really prior to the constitution. Right. So the constitution itself looks, looks okay, but there's this national security law that allows for these other kinds of basically extra legal detentions and which was used a great deal, especially in the 1970s and 1950s and 60s as well to um, intimidate opponents or suspected opponents and which exists today. And still we have uh, several people every year being detained. It's not for the same, you know, over political purposes of the past. Yeah, but no, because even in India, sort of a lot of our laws come from the colonial administration, right? right? Um, and so we have a national security law as well, which allows mm-hmm. for preventive detention up to a year mm-hmm. on sort of no basis. And if you look okay. at all the cases over the last 10 years, about 80 to 90 percent of these people have been, been released after two or three years okay. because there have been no charges that could be filed right. against them. Well. So it's frightening how these laws could be used in today's context. Um, but how are civil liberties in South Korea today? Mm. Um, how do they fare right now? Uh, I think pretty well. Mm. I think uh, pretty well. Uh, before the candlelight movement, there was sort of a decline. If you look at some international indicators of these things, one would see uh, this sort of decline um, reflected in part because there had been some clampdown on the media environment. The predecessor to Akare, his name is Imyongbaki, was also in, in prison, um, had uh, clamped down on media and, say, from the public broadcasters, he had uh, taken out some of the critical journalists or closed down their programs, which encouraged them to leave. So there was, there was real concern. There was uh, the dissolution of a political party, um, also in connection with violation of the national security law uh, in the early part of the Pakane administration. So there were these kinds of causes for concern um, that have really dissipated in the last uh, three years or or so. So yeah, in the the media environment, yeah, there's this commercial side to it, but it's also people can can say what they want and people can form their own kinds of uh, of organizations. That's great, and the current government of Moon Jae-in has also been sort of trying to address a lot of the changes that the protests wanted. So again, the de-linking of businesses from politics and their influence from society. Uh, How has it been faring in that respect? Well, he has uh, a lot to do. (laughs) (laughs) His government was given a large mandate. Mm -hmm. And I think no matter who would have been elected in the wake of the impeachment would have put on a very different face Mm -hmm. from the previous president and would have tried to show how open that person was and show that that person is working directly to solve problems. And that's precisely what uh, Moon Jae-in has, has done from day one. And his uh, approval ratings in the first first year were extremely high because he was showing how hard he was working, because he was, was making himself visible, showing that none of this nonsense was occurring <laughs> that had occurred under the previous president. And uh, making sounds about addressing the problems that matter a lot to people about inequality and job opportunities and uh, work-life balance. Work-life balance was sort of one of the terms of the year. Last year, um, women's status in society, feminism has been a, a big issue in the past year as well. So he said all the right things. Well, and he said these things and he said that these are on the agenda and he makes move, moves in all these directions. It's hard to do all of them. Because, <laughs> you know, because some I think have work the most in here, they're not the most just society, they are the highest right. in right. And I can see sort of how this history would have led to that. Absolutely, right. It's uh, South Korea's an OECD member, um, but I think has the longest working hours among OECD countries. Last year, a law was put in place to cap the working week at 52 hours. Wow. which is still a long, yeah, still by my long. standards, still, still uh, a long week, and it caused outrage. Managers were saying, oh, our, our, we're not going to be able to get any work done and things like this. But um, the hope is that this will increase productivity, and then people will have time to yeah. enjoy, yeah, have some leisure, uh, enjoy family life, um, and be a little bit less less stressed. So I think... The, he's not going to be able to do everything mm. 
that he wants to or sets out to, but that's uh, neither should we expect that to be done. I think having a few very specific concrete measures in place and having these lead to some change, well, we'll see some incremental change on the basis of this. All right, so if you're looking to a future of South Korean democracy, and I would ask mm. you where it's heading, would you say incremental change is the way? Yes, I would say incremental change is the way. There, the, the biggest challenges right now are not necessarily with political institutions, but with um, managing the the economy and making sure that there is some fairness, uh, not just in an objective sense, but in a way that people feel that we live in a, in a society and a system that's fair. Of course, North Korea, um, which we haven't haven't talked about, it's an entirely another issue, but that's this is also going to... Um, shake things up in this country, to put it mildly. Yeah, yeah. I think North Korea is just a separate episode. It is. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, all right, so this is my last question. Sure. Um, and I ask this to all my guests. If someone is interested in reading more about the South Korean democracy or history, then what uh, books or what readings or resources would you recommend mm. for that? Uh, I would recommend uh, perhaps a book by the historian Bruce Cummings. He has uh, a modern history of Korea called Korea's Place in the Sun. And that goes back a little ways, but it also uh, covers uh, recent decades. And that would be uh, a good starting point for a thoughtful take on on South Korea's historical change. Thank you so much, Eric, for this. This is a great conversation. Thank you. So that's it for this episode of States of Anarchy. If you're interested in South Korea's democracy, then I have some resources for you in the episode description. If you have any comments or questions, then do reach out to me at the rate States of Anarchy on Instagram or at the rate Hamsini H on Twitter. You can listen to States of Anarchy on the IVM podcast app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you haven't subscribed already, just click on the button. And before you know it, we'll be back next week. नमस्ते मैं हूं सौरभ चंद्रा और मैं प्रणय कोटस्थाने जब महफिल खत्म होते-होते दरवाजे के बाहर पुलिया के ऊपर हम दुनिया भर की जटिल समस्याओं को सॉल्व करने में लग जाते हैं तो हो जाती है पुलियाबाजी अब आजकल के अपार्टमेंट वालों ने तो कभी पुलिया देखी नहीं होगी पर आप फीलिंग तो समझ ही सकते हैं तो आइए शामिल हो जाइए हमारी पुलियाबाजी में जहां प्रणय और मैं एक से एक इंटरेस्टिंग टॉपिक्स की तह तक जाएंगे आर्टिफिशियल इंटेलिजेंस बिटकॉइन पाकिस्तान मेडिकल एजुकेशन करेंसी क्राइसिस कभी हम दोनों के साथ और अक्सर स्पेशल एक्सपर्ट गेस्ट की कंपनी में सुनिए हमें आईवीएम की वेबसाइट ऐप या अपने फेवरेट पॉडकास्टिंग प्लेटफार्म पर हर दूसरे हफ्ते Do you wish you were smarter? Well, so do we. But the next best thing, we could make you sound smarter. And to help you with this endeavor, we are Simplified, Ooh. a podcast uh, that attempts to break down the complex world around you with a little knowledge, a lot of poor jokes, and a ton of random trivia. Episodes out every Monday on the IVM Podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. See, See ya. ya.